This is an SM Media production. Hi everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Chronicle the Rangers Journey right here on SM Media. I'm Scott McPike, it's a pleasure to be your host as always on this show. We are now at the stage, we're going to be at the first, I would say the first really show that we look at in a negative fashion. We are now into 2006, the Paul Le Guin project, what happens when Rangers appointed their second foreign manager in 2006 when David Murray pursued the French manager Paul Le Guin and brought him to Ibrox. What follows is a weird story. There's a lot to get into here. It's it's you would think it's the shortest period I think we'll talk about, but I think probably more news than anything to go through in a, a short period of time. To join me on this part of the journey from the Gallant Few podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Colin McDuff onto the show. Colin, welcome to the Rangers Journey. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Hi Scott, hi listeners. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Um, you're right, this is a, a short but very interesting spell um, in the in the Murray reign. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. David Murray, uh, David Murray's best, I would say. Uh, not best, but he's, he knows what he wants, I would say, at this point, but Knowing what you want and actually executing it, as we will talk about later on in this podcast, are two very different things. We'll recap quickly on what we spoke about last on the last episode. Obviously, the, the Alex McLeish run had come to an end in weird fashion, although a, a Champions League last 16, still to this day the only manager for Rangers who's achieved that. Colin, it's fair to say the Alex McLeish run, just it was, it was time to move on once it was time to move into a new project. It really was. It was the right decision to 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 move Alex McLeish on, and I think project is the right word because we we, we didn't need another Scottish manager. We didn't need a, a a revamp. Well, it felt like we needed something completely different at that point in time because McLeish. But t- time has been very fond to McLeish, and I think that's fair because he. He won the treble, he won the double uh, in his first season, then went on to win the treble, then he won another league title. He was a successful manager, but he had to work with really bare bones of transfer budgets and difficult squads. So we did need something completely different and a, a complete overhaul. Yeah, we spoke about it last week. I think that's totally accurate. Like McLeish, he had, he had a treble winning squad sold out from under him, which, which we spoke about, and then wins a title, obviously wins a title in remarkable circumstances, and then we see that final season, just the, the budget he has, the some of the signings he makes that you just we, we know now, just looking back, they're just really, really poor. But the buzz immediately started. Who was going to be the 12th Rangers manager? We heard names. We Various names were mentioned. Graham Soonis was linked with a comeback. That was very possible back in the day. I think that is that's been confirmed that Soonis and Murray held talks and I think it was Soonis I think Soonis to a degree was keen to get back to where I think he's I think still to this day he would say it was 
the main place he was successful as a manager. Alan Curbishley, obviously at Charlton, he was linked with the job as well. Bert van Marwijk, the, the Dutch manager, he was linked with it after leading the Dutch team at that point. But it seemed very early on that the fans' choice and eventually Murray's choice was going to be Paul Le Guin, the former Lyon manager. He led Lyon to three titles in a row in France. Took a year out to, I think, just to get his kind of a wee sabbatical, I think is the right word. And we were all hearing that he was linked to the likes of Benfica, Lazio, Bayer Leverkusen. He was a, a commodity. Colin, do you remember the kind of hunt for a manager? Like, what were the kind of early thoughts? Was it always kind of like Gwen? Was it the first name and the, the only name at that point, do you think? The big one I remember it was Aaron Cubbishway, and I, I was giggling away at myself when you mentioned him because he was one of those names that was linked with Rangers every every window, basically, every seven years, every time Rangers <coughs> drawn at half time. Uh, you know how how quickly the fans can turn. It's uh, Aaron Cubbishway might be interesting Rangers. So it's a long time, so I do remember that. And I do remember the the clamour for um well, for Sunnis in the media, um, that was uh, I think before Le Guin was mentioned. I do remember Sunnis being one of the early favourites. I remember when when fans at that point spoke about Sunnis and Smith, there was an air of caution or that whole coming back and ruining a legacy. So as soon as as soon as Le Guin's name was mentioned, it was exciting. It's exactly what we needed when I'm saying we needed a complete overhaul. We didn't need another Scottish manager. We needed somebody with European pedigree. Bear in mind, Rangers have still never, up until up until McLeish gets into the, the last 16 of the Champions League, we've never really been serious with European football um, throughout the late 90s or early 2000s. So somebody who has got a good pedigree in the continent, um, really, like, really, really good Leon team. He built three, three championships in a row and he... They pulled away in Europe, and as soon as that was mentioned, I think that was the overwhelming favourite for fans. Yeah, the fans were. I think the fans were desperately keen for this to happen, but it doesn't seem like Le Guin was was desperate to come. I think there was a to be fair to Murray, and we we speak about this obviously a couple of times. Murray's had to do this. Murray goes to work and tries to bring him to Ibrox. He takes him to the vineyard. They lays on the. The banquet, he does everything to try and get Le Guin to Ibrox. He's he, Murray obviously fluent in French. He's he's pulling the charm, I think it's fair to say. I think this is David this is David Murray. This is this is what we when we think about David Murray's legacy and what the the very few things that put are positive about his legacy in terms of doing deals and being a salesman and he's he's good at it. He's really good at it. He, he does it with Le Guin. Le Guin, I think's a bit cautious, doesn't want I think he's I think Le Guin's been keen to try British football at this point. I think he's obviously got his eye on replacing Wenger. I don't think that's unfair to say, but there was excitement when it was announced on the eleventh of March that Paul Le Guin was going to take over and immediately it was who's gonna come, who's the players? It was the parallels in nineteen ninety eight with Advocat are, are there to see you've got a World Cup in the horizon, you've got a foreign manager coming in, you've got all these links in the media, Murray out saying, we'll touch on what he, what he comes out with later in a few minutes, but Murray's out saying the manager's going to get back. There's just there's that buzz around the club, particularly with a foreign manager, that this is going to be this is going to be a new revolution and a 
at that time you would think a much needed revolution because the culture at the club was was all wrong. It is as you said, Colin, it needed a, a European stamp on it, it needed something different to what we'd seen in the previous years. Yeah, and that's when you mentioned about the World Cup there, that's right. So just for context, I was fourteen coming up for fifteen at this point. <laughs> It's the first time I remember watching the World Cup with the with my interest being who's Rangers going to sign for this World Cup because that was what how it was painted to the fans. I think I think Murray's words were big changes coming and um he's you know we've got big plans. Um I think he had a, a couple of press conferences where he spoke about the plans for the Glen is going to be backed and the new retail deal with JJB, yep. which was going to completely uh <laughs> bankroll every new signing and look how well that turned out so at this point we we still as a fan base we were still taking what Murray said at face value so it was it, it, <coughs> that period didn't end uh, too excitedly but I remember being really really excited and looking forward to that summer um just reading the papers every day on the on the way to school, jumping up to the shop to <laughs> get the papers, reading all of them, seeing that like, who we're going to buy. It, it was a buzz. Yeah, there was a buzz, and there was a the rumours were getting quick and who was going to come in. And Murray was Murray was famous in the press for saying that this new dawn was going to be a massive moonbeam of success. That rang a bell. That quote. It does. I I was I was trying to remember the the phraseology he used because I remember he had a wee slogan. Um, that was it. And, you know, that's when you talk about the David Murray charm, it wasn't just on an individual basis. He, he found a way time and time again to charm the Rangers support and charm the media eventually as well. Eventually it does wear off um, and we'll come to that, you'll come to that in later. I think, that's, I think this is it. I think this is the beginning of that. I think this is the first time you see the the moonbeam. I think if I think this is the one Murray would take back. I think if you asked him if they said if there's one thing you could take back for your for saying this would be it because it's just become a symbol for people to beat him with and there was an overall feeling of positivity that absolutely was and you mentioned there about the retail deal so we'll touch on that this was the time that Rangers had signed the, the famous 10 year 48 million pound deal with JJB 18 million been given to the club up front that season was was thought to be what was going to be Le Guin's budget was going to be it was going to get this massive cash injection and it was going to be a mass as as we say it, it was going to be a massive pot of cash for the new manager to put his own stamp on the squad. But the irony of this thing is this this is actually a drop in Rangers retail deal at the time. Rangers, although it looks 10 years for eight million deals, Rangers were making more than that in the retail at this point. Rangers had got a really good deal out of Nick Peel, who was a commercial director who's actually I think when you look back in this time, I think him, Campbell Ogilvy, who kind of leave at this this time, they're both really underrated figures. Nick Peel had made a lot of money for Rangers, obviously the famous deal with Diodora. It was commercial the commercial revenue at this time was really good. And this JJB deal seemed to be the kind of not just the end of that kind of Peel was leaving in 2005 and so did Ogilvy. There was there was a lot of talk at the time that this was Martin Bain who was going into chief executive. He was going to be the new kind of guy making all these decisions. But that JJB deal, that's when you see that 18 million being given to the club up front, that's people were thinking this is Le Guin's budget. This is what Le Guin's gonna have. And this is a real new start for the club. And here we go. This is a massive change in the culture and just 
this is a new era. Aye, and in, in hindsight, it's it was the beginning of the, the rapid downfall because this is the point where all decisions made at that level were about the immediate cash injection. Yeah. So we didn't focus on the how much we're going to lose over the next five, ten years is that eighty million pound now and we, we now know that that wasn't for the that wasn't for, for the <laughs> transfers that was, you know, to keep the, the banks at bay. But I just uh, I really can't reiterate that this is probably why the Liguena area is such a come down because how much weight of the expectation we had for like for the coach himself and how it was almost as if the, the club the club's football structure was moving with it as yeah, well. You know, bringing absolutely. in this new manager. Similar to how we've seen it move from Smith in the nineties to Advocate, there was a, a culture change in the club and this just felt like the next the next change coming along. The one and only transfer window of Paul Gwen's Rangers career is the only word for it is bizarre. Like you've got the links in the press. I was looking through this when we, before we come on and just some of the names were linked. Gregory Coupe, obviously at Leon Le Guin, Sidney Govu, Johan Gorsov, uh, there was even links with Fabian Bartes. There was a lot of that talk at the time that this was going to be a French revolution. Who did, who was the names you remember at that time been linked with and getting excited about? I remember Gregory Coupe like and thinking that's exactly that that could be massive. There's so many players that were getting linked and you were just like, this is Rangers could still attract big players. I argued until I was blue in the face with my pals who were Celtic fans about how Sydney Juvu was going to be the top goal scorer in Scotland <laughs> that season. And I just I genuinely couldn't understand couldn't comprehend Rangers not winning the league with Sydney Juvu. And now I should caveat all of this with 14-year-old, still young and naive, and believe everything I see in the papers. Um, 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 you know, I, I'm a far cry for that, but, you know, it's in the papers and it's strongly linked and here and there. And, you know, so that was the big one for me. And, you know, Dado Porsche had been a massive, massive player for McLeishan. Well, he, he remained there. We could tell, like, we signed him with no knees, so yeah, like, exactly. he to get two seasons at him was phenomenal, but we knew he wasn't going to be like the answer for going forward. So we it was the big striker who was going to come in. Um my, my favorite one, uh, the one that I really didn't believe in, this generally was I think it was the son um that Zinedine Zidane would consider coming out of retirement and one of the clubs he may consider as Rangers. And I thought that's a it's a bit of a stretch. But at that point in time it wasn't like that. That was the kind of bizarre rumours that were going about. Anybody who'd ever played in France or had any sort of French connection, they were they were getting linked. And well, that the the damn one is mental. Um, we I think it's hard to appreciate now how much a pull Paul Le Guin would have had on the continent. Um, yeah, like it, it was a big big name. Mm-hmm. It absolutely was. He was. Yeah, I mean, we're thinking like it turns down like Sabinfica and Lazio. Like they're they're not they're nothing they're not nothing clubs. They're big big names in European football. And as you say, I, I remember talk about the Zidane one, but that was never that that's that was a paper. Nice to see in two thousand twenty two that hasn't changed. Some weird links in the still to this day. But early signings, you look at a few of the early signings: Libor Sionko, Czech international, positive. Jeremy Clement. I think the whole plan was. 
Ferguson and Clermont was going to be in the midfield and Clermont was this young talent that Rangers were going to build and similarly Van Bronckhorst were going to sell on for big money and Carol Svensson, Carol Svensson from Gothenburg, um, I think with Swedish defenders there's this myth that they're all brilliant and they're all hard men and Carol Svensson certainly put one to that but there's promising start. I was, I mean, when you look at the first three signings and the age more than anything as well, that these are these are kind of proper, decent acquisitions at the time. There's there's a bit of, there's still positivity at this time that this is these are big signings going forward. Aye, that's it. That, that was the thing for me. Like, well, these weren't your marquee signings that we were expecting. For like Leber Sionko and Carl Svensson, they were both in the World Cup squads. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Germany for Czech Republic and Sweden so well I think they only got one game each but back to this right if this is the level that we're, we're aiming at you know we are getting international players um, you know that's it, it's exciting so when these first three signings came in it was like okay this is a good start like these guys will absolutely compliment whoever the marquee signing will be and Jeremy Cremont there was a lot of excitement for him yeah, as well because he had was. Um, you know, I had I think at that point, same way as Fencing, I think they had maybe a hundred odd games under the belt, um, at top top tier football, and they were only twenty two. Uh, so, like these were young players with massive potential who who were coming in to like to start and develop into something bigger. The next one is the one that I raised eyebrows for a lot of people. The Rangers they finally got the goalkeeper. We thought. Maybe Fabian Barthez, Gregory Coupe. It was a French international, but it wasn't them. It was Lino Letizzi, 33-year-old goalkeeper from, I think he came from Paris Saint-Germain. This one's weird. This one, even now when you look at it, when you look at the names Rangers are linked with, he's 33-year-old. He's not a massive name. I mean, he played against Rangers for PSG. We knew of him, but... When you look at who they were linked with, even obviously the famous story about Ray Murray had told members of supporters groups that he was signing Steve Mandanda. There's a big difference between a 33-year-old Lionel Letizzi and a, even a 23-year-old Gregory Coupe at that point. Like, this is weird when you look back at it. It's like one of those memes, like, when you order off a wish. And <laughs> um, yeah, it was. And that this one was... It was hard to gauge. Okay, is he coming in to be Ron the replacement for like Ronald Vatteris or Gosset yeah. number one, or is he a backup keeper? So at that point, if you know, it was two shows of thought. If you are, if you are the optimist, it's like okay, we'll wait and see. We'll maybe, we'll maybe have a plan for a for a number one to come in, and then the the real. I was about to say the pessimist, but actually, it was the realist. Well, like no, this is um. Uh, this is our number one keeper. This is uh, I. It was strange because even that the the PTS career, it was never. It was never really like a top tier goal. It was never no. an established great number one. And Rangers, like for as long as I've been born, they've always we've always proud ourselves on having like building for the back and having amazing goalkeepers. Uh, yeah. you know, and we just we, we had Klaus and Vatteris the season before and. This was a, a major downgrade. There's there's a, there's more signings to talk about. Obviously, we'd mentioned Libor Sionko, who came from Austria, Vienna. I'll just say, keep that name in mind. Austria, Vienna. Keep that name in the top of your mind, listeners, because we'll talk about them a few times in the next couple of minutes. 
two exciting youngsters though coming in for Man United, Lee Martin and Phil Barsley. That was I, I remember being exciting, particularly with Lee Martin. Do you remember he absolutely destroyed Celtic at Parkhead in a friendly? There was a big talk that Lee Martin was going to rip up Scottish football. Rangers had tried to sign a striker. I think there was chat about uh, Johan Omanda, who obviously were on and done well at Bolton. But Austria, Vienna, we'd mentioned them just a second ago. And Rangers sent £2 million on a striker from them called Philip Zebo. This I remember leading to questions as, what is going on here? Why are, they, why are Rangers signing another player from Austria, Vienna? And they would only get fueled a few days later when Rangers... Spent a spent more money bringing a third player in from Austria Vienna by the name of Sasa Papac. What's going on here? What's it was it was really strange. Oh yeah, we we see it now with with Rangers. You know they'll maybe target the Croatian league or the Eastern Europe. Yeah. So to to target a an area an untapped area that absolutely makes sense. That's good scouting. To just pick a, a club and take three of the first team players. It, it's, it, it felt lazy um, at best and just, I don't know, a bit dodgy at worst. It was it was really strange. And it wasn't, I think Levers Yonko was the, the highest profile out, out of the team, um, Czech international. And, you know, he was a bit more established. I think he was older than, uh, maybe a couple of years older than Papa Chan Sebo. Um, and he'd been in and around the, the Czech Republic squad for a while. So, he was the, the bigger name, uh, so you kind of understand that. But Sibo and, and Papac, that was, you know, that it was the amusement more than anything. The amusement's the word for it. I mean, I remember the time phone ins and why are, why are Rangers signing two, three players from Austria Vienna? Why are, why is Le Guin not getting all this money that was promised? I mean, his budget's three million. Paul Le Guin, is Paul Le Guin sitting in? The vineyards getting told you're getting three million pounds and you're getting three players from Austria Vienna. Because if Paul Gwen's getting told that, then I would be astonished. Aye, and that's why I think that's why we were so confused and you know maybe starting to ask the questions because we all know our manager, uh, Paul Gwen's caliber at that point doesn't come to. So, um, I've just looked up Sebo's scoring record there. I knew it was something poor. It was six and thirty-two appearances for Austria Vienna. Um, that's not that's not going to that's not going to sell you the Rangers job when you can go to Italy or Spain or back to France. Uh, so I think I think fans were right to, you know, I don't think it was panic stations at this point, but we were starting to question right. Okay, let's wait and see what happens between now and the the rest of the window, hoping that Murray's yeah. got something up his sleeve. Yeah, and you mentioned there, obviously, Murray, and the questions do come to his door. Why Why is he not getting the funds that were promised? Why Why is this all we're getting? Like that, I remember that at the time, but the summer, it wasn't without controversy, I think that's fair to say, and I think Le Guin, to be fair to him, I think he, he stamped his authority very quickly, obviously the famous incident with Fernando Rickson, who the pre-season tour of South Africa, it's only... Yeah, it can only be described as an alcohol fueled incident on the plane, and then you laugh at this when you actually think about it. Shoving John McClelland into a swimming pool. That's funny. That's 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 funny. That's the Fernando we, we loved. Yeah, <laughs> that's the Fernando we loved. And you feel bad, obviously, you feel bad talking about Fernando in this way, but I think a lot of people agreed that this was like stamping and making tough decisions to ensure team discipline. Rickson was sent out and loan to 
to reunite with Dick Advocat at Zenit. And it felt at the time, and it was a sad way for Rickson to end his career. And we know, obviously, we've, we've touched on Fernando Rickson, what a warrior he was in his final the final battle he had in his life. But at this point, it did feel like this was this was the right thing. Le Guin got a lot of credit for doing this because it was stamping his authority quickly. And this was a no-nonsense manager who was going to come in and just make tough decisions. Aye, and there was it was sad at, at that point because Rickson was the, the captain that you know, where they stayed uh, where they stayed helicopter Sunday and he struggled yeah. and he was wonderful for McLeish that season. The season after he, he wasn't great. I mean, amongst others, he, he didn't really live up to his potential of playing the best of his ability. And he always like all through Fernando Rickson's career, he was a bit of a live wire. And so he could be unpredictable when he wasn't fully focused. So at that point, well, it's sad to see, you know, a great servant to the club go. It was a bit encouraging that this is, you know, this is a standard expected at Rangers. And going back to that overhaul that we were expecting to come back, we, okay, this is this is a new regime. And we're absolutely not going to accept anything below path. Yeah, and it's as you say, it's just a sad way for it for Rickson's Rangers career to end. But the new the first game of the Laguen era, two one away, one over Motherwell, with I filled the Rangers fans with a lot of hope. There was a lot of attractive football on display, but it was a beginning. It was a false dawn. Would you remember about that Motherwell game? Because I remember that time thinking this this is the way. It was a four four two. Tionko looked really good. Clement, I remember Clement looking looking brilliant. That's, I mean, you look back in this game, Rangers played some terrific stuff. Aye, and what what was really good to see, because we were so used to maybe Chris Buck on the right and Hamid Namucci on the left, who was basically playing like a setting left back under yeah. uh, McLeish at times. And it was good to see two two wide men having a go at the Motherwell defence. Lee Martin on the left, Sionko on the right. And we still had the likes of Thomas Buffal, Mm-hmm. To come on natural novel, and you know, it, it was looking as if we were it also the unknown entity Philip Seaboard at that point. But it, it was Clement Jeremy Clement had a great game, I remember that. And you're like, wow, Rangers typically don't start seasons very well. So, is it if this is where we're starting, where are we going to go? Um, under, under this new management team, yeah, as you as we say, it turned out to be a false dawn. The next two draws against Indian United and Femlin. I just immediate concerns are raised about the defence, particularly Svensson and Leticia. I mean, you'll remember any cross ball that was coming into the box, it was it was a likely goal. The Svensson and Leticia just looked miles off it, didn't they? Aye, and you'll know your like we, we speak about it on the pod all the time. We're a very unforgiving crowd. And yes. Well very hard to win over at the best of times, never mind win back. So Svensson got a bit more leeway. He was young and there was a bit more hype about him. Because we were never really sold in Lionel Letizia, the jury was out and there was there was a lot of mourning groans very early on. And maybe he didn't do himself very many favours, but that was that was the big warning signs that predicting that season, okay, we're going to maybe we're going to maybe take three, four off teams, but they're going to take a couple off the others and we need to address that defence. Yeah, and it keeps going on. I mean, wins against Hearts and Falkirk did show the pro- there was there was progress, but the defeat against 
Hibs at Easter Road, three wins for seven league games heading into a, the first old form of the season against Celtic at Parkhead. That game's a that game's a strange one. We'll touch on why in a minute. But Thomas Gravison scores for Celtic early on, and then Kenny Miller comes back to Haunt Rangers. Had obviously signed for Celtic in that summer. This is that this is alarm bells because defensive woes are apparent. And going forward, Rangers played well. But I think Rangers did play some decent stuff, but at the back they were just a basket case. Aye, that's probably the the first game I had concerns about Clement as well. I think going forward, we, as you said, we played well and we looked as if we were going to be able to create, but basket case to the back, absolutely. But in the back and in the middle of the park, we looked as if we lacked the fight and lacked the aggression. And that's, I think that's when I first really felt that we maybe seen some some of the more industrious teams uh, in the league, like the Motherwell, they would, you know, you, you know, it's a physical league, so you maybe gave the benefit of the doubt, it will take these players up. A bit of time to settle into that, but just aggression and desire. I mean, I, I think you, for memory, that game, it only really felt like Barry Ferguson was, you know, the, the streamer, but even then, it, it wasn't really having any impact. So that was the big alarm bells for me that, right, Celtic just wanted that more in mm. top of being, being the better team. Yeah, and it's not, we look back in that Celtic team, it isn't a vintage Celtic team. It's, it's, a, really it's an effective Celtic team. I think they do their job well, but you're talking about Celtic teams over the years. This isn't a this isn't a top-class Celtic team. But the post-match comments of Le Guin, I want to touch on them because they raised a worry for a few groups of fans. I went on to like the, look, I typed in this into Google the other day and I, I rem- there was things at the time that this was raising alarm bells. Le Guin said after the game, there are no miracles in football. And it, this there was hope that although that defeated kind of thought Rangers aren't what we thought it isn't what we thought it would be. There was still hope, I would say, at this point. But behind the scenes, you've got a manager who I think it's fair to say is questioning whether this is the right place for him. And after that Celtic game, Paul Le Guin walks into David Murray's office and tells him he was thinking of receiving he was thinking of resigning as manager. He cited the reasons this has all come out recently that he thought the players were not behind him and his vision for the club. Murray, knowing how embarrassing this would be, was I think he was taken aback that this was happening so early. And Paul Glenn's only in the door two months at this point, and he's thinking about he's already at the stage of this isn't for me. I think we'll touch on what becomes clear later on, but Murray knew this couldn't that he, he couldn't have a manager walking out after two months so Murray to be fair to him he, he keeps him on he persuades him to stay on but this is it's already heading down a dangerous path isn't it at this point when you're when you're two months into a job and you're playing in your first old firm game and you walk into the and tell the chairman that's brought you in and done a lot of work to bring you in and has been I think a massive coup in Murray's part to bring him in and telling him this isn't going to work, and already you're, you're, it's an uphill struggle for that point, I would say. Absolutely, and there's a couple of things that are probably, probably the, the public image for Le Guin at that point, before we know it, everything we know now about that conversation had to be money, take him out and say there's no miracles in football when, let's face it, it's Celtic are your only real challengers for the league at that point. And to 
to even like suggest it's a miracle to compete with them. If that's what he's saying in the public, then what is he saying to the players and what message is he is he saying to the players? That's massive alarm bells and it, it shouldn't have took like when to walk into Murray's door for Murray to realise that that this isn't this isn't gonna go well. I don't know if it's it's hard to say in, in, in hindsight as was it the right decision at that point to keep him on? Um was it should should you have cut your losses there and then? But what I would say is I've no doubt in my mind that David Murray didn't act in the best interest of Rangers football club. He wanted to save face for David Murray. Absolutely, yeah. That's and, exactly that's why he's that's why he's still there. That's why Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He tries to keep him on. Murray, Murray must know. You, you can usually tell when you when you speak to somebody, and you know you can tell with their body language that they're, they're not in their, the best place, and this isn't the place for them. And Murray must have seen that in Le Guin. And again, you've got to you've got to say for Le Guin to go in there and say this and this isn't going to work. I am, I am, I am admitting to you, I can't do this. I can't do this job. This this. It takes a lot of guts, and in a sense, to say, open up and admit it. But the one, the reason I want to bring this up as well is that the the high point in the reign of Le Guin's obviously the run in UEFA Cup and qualifying against Mulder, entering the new group stage, the top the group with three wins and a draw. They, they became Le Guin's the Le Guin has this. He's the first manager to to take a Scottish team to Italy and win. They beat Livorno 3-2. They beat the likes of Maccabi Hive and Partizan Belgrade. What was so different in Europe? It's an impressive European run, but why? how could this not translate to domestic? Like It was it was a different animal in Europe. There were, was it the pressure of the home, the, the domestic bubble that we live in in Scottish football? Aye, Glenn could never get to grips with the like the kick and rush, the high tempo nature of Scottish football, and almost like the lack of football is is a it's a high intensity physical game, and you don't really you don't you're not you're not afforded the luxury uh, making your stamp and getting your free flowing football, and, and I think that's that was clear what he was trying to do. I think it was clear what he was trying to do in the league, and especially with the attacking style of play, it just wasn't working out. So. The European game where you do get a, a bit more at that point, you do get a bit more time in the ball. You're, you, you know, there's there's less of a physicality, and I think that the players that he was relying on for the especially the attacking play, they, they, they thrived under that. Um, I think Thomas Buffel as well. I think he was a big player from the McLean. Smith wasn't a fan of him, but Buffel doesn't get a lot of plaudits for. They would win area, but he was excellent in Europe for them. I, I remember that. They like to see Onko as well. And Jeremy Clement came into came into play. And I thought Clement and Ferguson along with him, Danny. I don't know if you remember, it was kind of like the 4 3 1 2. Yeah. They played with, with them. That midfield three, him Danny sitting and Ferguson just dictating play at the tempo with Clement just being allowed to be neat and tidy in the ball and choose recycle the ball, it works really well. And again, it's just because that style of play they they could afford. Well, what like when the team when they when they do that was adapting to a different style, a style that they didn't want to play. November the eighth, two thousand and six. Do you remember that night? Um, I I should 
No, is that the is that the cup game? That's the cup game. Rangers take on St. Johnson in the League Cup. I think a lot of people think it's going to be a routine cup tie against a first division team, but no, it is not. Rangers lose the game 2 nothing at home. Stephen Milne scores two goals and Rangers are out of the domestic cup to a first division team. The first time that would ever happen. I remember I was at that game that night. The atmosphere around the Ibrox was toxic. And the protests after the game, and I think it wasn't about it wasn't just about how poor results were. It was, it was aimed at Murray as well. It wasn't just about Le Guin and how bad the performances were. It was, what is going on here? Why is this investment not happened? Why, why are Rangers in this position? Rangers should never be going out to a first division team in a cup. Never, especially at home. And that night just felt like that would be the the turning point for a lot of fans who would. Who'd wanted to buy into the Kashinya? Uh, the Kashinya, I think, suffered the same. A lot of fans wanted to be right and wanted to to back them as much as possible, but there comes a point where you just can't. And I think that was that night. It just turned that night. I just remember the atmosphere. I don't think I've ever seen it as toxic as it was that night. And it was it was actually quite toxic before the full time as well. Um, it, as soon as we got an indication that it was New York night. Uh, we won. They play. We didn't play well at all. This wasn't. This wasn't what you you sometimes see in cup games where Rangers or Celtic will have ninety percent possession and they hit the bar and there's shot after shot and the other team nicks it. St Johnston were the better team. We were just poor for start to finish, and that turned the crowd really, really quickly. And it just, as you say, it's hard to remember a more toxic, more toxic atmosphere. Um, Said at the start, but a very unforgiving crowd, and we, we didn't hold back at that point. Am I right in saying that the pro the post match press conference that night? Um, that's the one where it, it, it's just kept on saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's yeah. not good enough. Yeah, and, and I remember seeing that in the news the next day, thinking, Right, ah, you need to hold your hands up, but it's just it didn't. You felt you lost a bit of respect for him because he just looked under pressure, didn't he? Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly that. I think at this point he's he knows he can't turn it round. He knows within himself he, even if he even if he wanted to, it's just not going to last. It's you know as you know as well as I do, if you're in a job and immediately you just get alarm bells that this isn't this isn't for you, you're it's not going to change. It's, you're not your your mind's made up within yourself. You're not even if it turns out to be, you could be promised the world. You could be promised more money. You could be promised a blitz in January. It's your your mind's gone. Your mind's gone, and it's as well. We don't talk about this often enough. It's a different culture, and that's that in my mind is the whole thing. Like when, not only did he not understand Scottish football, he didn't want to at this point. He wanted. It was. I wouldn't say he was working his ticket because he obviously was was going out every week wanting Rangers to win. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that you you just could. It just wasn't going to be long term at this point. The the mind. His mind was gone, and I think that night, as you say, I, I for, totally forgot all about that. It was. It was almost as if I. It, it remind. It reminded you of a bit of a, a child just desperate for somebody to just give him a hug. That's what it reminded you right. of. Just like. Somebody come and help me. Somebody just take me away from this. And, and that's what that knowing what, And knowing what we know now, when he's went and, he's went and absolutely, he was brave to call out, this isn't for me, this isn't working out. But 
then be coerced into staying and then he's in that position, like you do feel bad for him a bit. Like, you do, you do. And the the next, do you remember the press conference a few days later? Is that the one with David Murray? And it's basically that. So you've said the perfect analogy that he was like a child and you just want somebody to hug him. And this press conference was the child upsetting the playground and the teacher coming out holding his hand saying, play nice with Paul Goodwin, please. Yes. And Murray, this is Murray in a nutshell. This is Murray not wanting to admit to himself that this is on me. He's up, he's in that press conference and the famous statement that if he puts it in the players, he puts it in the players and his words were, and this, this is a quote. If the players don't get their act together, then they will be playing for clubs like Bristol Rovers. I mean, I don't know what to say to that. And I've watched it, read it. I've and Le Guin's just sitting there, and you do think a little, you do think about Le Guin at this point. You're thinking, what is he? What is he thinking? Like, what is what is going through his mind at this point? Is Murray's come out to to back his man? He doesn't want to admit to himself that he's made it. He's made a mistake. He doesn't want to admit to himself that this isn't going to work, but to come out with a statement like that and that's more in a nutshell, just not admitting that you've... There's not admitting to yourself and admitting to the fans that this, is, this isn't what's going to... This is wrong and we can, everybody can see it's wrong. You look at that press conference, there's nothing to through my mind other than this is a... Paul Le Guin needs taken out of this situation because this is not in the best interest of Rangers and Paul Le Guin. You're you're watching a man literally crumble at the th- at before before you, and Murray sitting there putting it all on the players and determined to keep Le Guin and put Le Guin through this misery. And that's David Murray didn't sack managers like we've no, seen it didn't. in the uh, late nineties. A lot of people wanted Walter Smith to go in the tenant what would should have been the tenant. Murray season. Murray has to be forced into making this decision. This is. Murray has, doesn't have a choice at the end up, and that that's exactly it. He didn't. He just couldn't admit to himself that this this wasn't working. Right, and you're you're totally right. It's that press conference wasn't it for the benefit of Paul Edwin. That was that was still the David Murray show to say for him to save face exactly like it was for coercing Paul Edwin to stay when they didn't want to go. It was to save face for him for him to come out and say, "No, this isn't this isn't my fault. I've made the right decision." The players somebody bought in here. That's him saying, "No, I've done everything above board. Using it to change." David Murray blaming other people. That's that's the symbol of this. He's show. made a living out of it, <laughs> and he's and he did it the season before as well. The famous we spoke about it in the last episode, coming out and saying McLeish has got five games to save his job. He doesn't win any of them. McLeish stays because he doesn't want to sack him. He doesn't want to admit this is this hasn't this hasn't working. And that's Murray in a nutshell. But league wars would intensify with poor defeats at home to Inverness and Dundee United and Falkirk away defeats as well. Defensive errors are at this point it's amateur hour. And you remember some of the defensive partnerships. I mean, Papach, we we both will we both love Sasa Papach as a left back, but as a as a centre back, no, he isn't. And I like Sam Danny playing in there and Carol's fencing at this point. I've I don't think I've ever seen a defender just not not cut out for Rangers in Scottish football and Carol Svensson and Letice would eventually be replaced. Obviously, Alan McGregor would come in. 
he would make the number one shot his own. He'd, he'd waited for his opportunity. I mean, God bless him. I think he must have had plenty of chances to to walk out the door. But he stayed on and he gets his chance. And McGregor just goes on and is, in my opinion, is one of the best Rangers careers of all time. And this is where it kicks off and it's it becomes his. Just to think, if we did sign a better keeper, he might not have got that chance. Eh? So yeah. did we forward when for, <laughs> for McGregor's career? Um, maybe a bit of a stretch. But it's funny, just on the before we before we what's funny about Alan McGregor because I can do that all night long. Uh, yeah. I love the man. Um, when you spoke about working like working his ticket for the Inverness game, I actually think that as well because. McGregor was in for maybe six, seven games before this, and this was a game he just randomly brought Latizzi back in. Yeah, I remember that. He's, yeah. just, he's just trying to wind us up now, isn't he? And it's that thing as well when behind the scenes, Le Guin isn't happy, and the dressing room at this point, I don't think it's a happy camp. And Le Guin, French football is different to Scottish football, and it's a better standard of, standard of quality, yes, but. At Leon, I think if Leon go to a team, and I'm just using this as an example, if Le- Leon go to a team like non and draw one each away to home, it's not a disaster. And to go from that to Scottish football, where if you lose lose 2-1 to Inverness and you lose a late goal, fans are baying for your blood. And we know that. And that's, that's Scottish football and that's the weird mental thing of Scottish football when... Le Guin just didn't get that and that attitude of brushing defeats off and you've got men in there like Sir Barry Ferguson will touch on it in a few minutes but Le Guin just didn't understand that poor results like that just they're not acceptable you can't draw it you can't draw away to Falkirk you need to you can't lose at home to Inverness and just brush it off and say we, we improve the next game you can't do that no, and we've seen it more recently with Mark Warburton coming up, and yeah, he, he thought he was going to get a bye because it was his first season in the in the top flight. But it's you know we've been like this since <laughs> since over one hundred and fifty years now. We're not going to change. You need to change for us. It's where it's right, wrong, and different. The, the expectation on Rangers is is always going to be there, and that is one of the few clubs in the world where you are expected to win every game. And well, Smith. Always said it beautifully. Most most big clubs, you're always with your last game. The Rangers, you're always with your last pass. Um, you know, there's plenty, thousands of examples where we've won one nil. I would not say no played well. You've came away raging. That's mm-hmm. it's just but a different beast. It's a different it's a different culture, and it's that. I mean, some of the some of the media reports at this time are absolutely nonsense. You've got the famous, is it Le Shop, Le Shop or something, where they literally had his head in a guillotine saying, when is he going to go? And that's that's nonsense, but there and was that. Um, you, you probably have touched on it um, in, in the last couple of episodes as well. That, that'll be money as well. Anybody in the media, uh, anybody in the media can use Rangers as fair game as long as David Murray isn't attacked. And I think the media really did jump on the funny foreigner here. Like, and the weird thing is, they didn't have to look too far just to criticise his, his football and tactics, but it was that whole, there was an area of xenophobia about it as well, wasn't it? Very much like Pedro Cristina. 
Yes, and the, the, I think you've touched on something very, very noticeable there that there is this difference of a lot of Scottish players, a lot of Scottish managers, like with results like this, would get time because they're mates with the press. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, and we saw it with Kishinia, we even saw it across the city with Ronnie Dyla and likes of Dr. Joe. Like, if you're not, if it's not working and you're, you're not part of the clique, you don't last. And the media in Scotland are so weird and we've touched on it in late, previous episodes and we'll touch on it probably in later episodes, but let's touch back on to the on-field stuff. Le Guin at this point, I think, is just, he's, he's looking for a way out. I think he's just desperate to, for something just to happen. But results do improve. I mean, don't get me wrong, a, a home win, home wins over Hibs and Aberdeen and that Hemdani late equaliser against Celtic. It showed there was slight improvement in league form, but that dressing room disharmony would come to a head in the 27th of December up in Inverness, a 2-1 defeat. One up, winning the game 1-0, losing two late goals, and Le Guin again had went in and said, we must stick together, we must carry on, This we move forward. And I think Barry Ferguson, I don't think he was alone, and we will go into that in detail in a few minutes, the whole situation between those two, but Ferguson questioned the manager, like, don't tell us this is okay because this is Rangers Football Club and it isn't. The attitude was, this, is, this isn't acceptable and Rangers at this point are in third place, 17 points behind Celtic. The league's over and Le Guin's telling the Rangers dressing room that this is fine, we must carry on and it wasn't okay and Ferguson, I, I don't think Ferguson covers himself in glory in this and we'll speak about it in a minute, but it's it's coming to a head. Aye, how how Ferguson goes about. Um, th- this is probably the beginning of the downfall of Ferguson as well. Um, yes, it is. It's the first nail. That's his last warning, but he doesn't. He thinks it. You will get it. You will get to it, and um, when when Walter returns, but he uh, doesn't have a constant buy. So. How he goes about it, it's probably the wrong way, but the message he's saying is spot on. It's not acceptable, and somebody did have to stand up. But, it's, but I do think it's really interesting when you look at how we view Paul Gwen's grasp on the players and the dressing room and how quickly it changed. For sending Fernando Rickson away because um, he, he just doesn't uphold that, like, that right standards behaviour. But then... I don't know if you remember around October, November time, there was there was a a, a dispute with Phil Bardsley. Yeah. And, and um, I think it was something to do with Le Guin's ass for no. The yeah, rumours at the time. Ban tackle. Ban tackles. And <laughs> Bardsley, um, ever the hothead, I think he flies <laughs> into um, Clermont or something. And But I remember at that point, that's when the media and the fans started to question, was that the right thing? Mm-hmm. But I can only... I can only guess that at this point the players are starting to question right what's going on here as well because we won the we won the winning and then this just it just comes to a halt here when the club captain and club captain though he's always been a big presence at every club he goes to um you know this this streamer he's he's always been like that so I I can only imagine it wasn't Paul may I have a word please it was um 
a full-blown shouting match in the dressing room. Yes, and it was. I've spoke to people who were in that dressing room that day, and it's that's exactly what happened. And it's it's that thing you just touched on as well. With if Rangers are winning, if Rangers are seventeen points clear at the top of the league, the cut, the the ban and tackling and things like that, it's it's probably seen as revolutionary. It's probably seen as this this is how this is how to do it. And when you're not winning and you're making these decisions, I mean, we the famous thing about the that's been labelled the monster munch brigade like he banned I think he banned a lot of stuff I think he banned ketchup and things like that like for, he wanted and Scottish football does not like imports coming in and telling them how to do it then that's players are players are like that as well right you look you could count in one hand how many famous how many foreign managers really last and really change the culture at the club that doesn't happen very often, and there's there's a reason for that. It's because Scotland's are Scottish football players are used to a certain way, and I'm not defending it. I think at times it needs to be done and needs to be done differently. But the likes of banning monster munch and things like that, that when when you're seeing when you're looking for reasons to to be disappointed in a situation, and you immediately you think to that, and the dressing room is splitting at that point, and. Another two points get dropped three days later at home at St Marin, and I will never forget this. And I just remember Ferguson sitting in the the middle of the park that day, just gutted. Rangers took the lead. Rangers took the lead really early. I think St Marin equalised about twenty minutes, and in seventy minutes, Rangers just don't don't pressure to get a winning goal. And you just see Ferguson. I think Ferguson was not on his pan in and. I think it just comes to a head that day. I think you just see a, a frustrated Ferguson and Le Guin saying the same thing of this this isn't a disaster, let's carry on and it just blows up completely and, and that's the dressing room at Ibrox that day. Aye, that was... As a fan, I remember, and this is when you know it's bad, it's you're not angry anymore, you're just... I don't know, you're... You're just so demotivated, and you like you know when you're angry, you're like this must be better. This will blah blah blah. When you're demotivated like that, you just don't see how this is going to improve, and that's that's how I felt. And I can only imagine that's how Barry Ferguson felt as well. And you know, it's it's hard to say like when should have done X, Y, and Z at this point in time when he clearly doesn't want to be there. But if if at this point if this was a manager who still did want to be there, like see the stuff that you're talking about, like changing the culture and that. I think when you talk about, you no, know, it's hard to a former manager to come in. It's they don't have that sense of realism that you need to balance it out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like banning monster man, getting everybody on a like a zero percent body fat diet. I that's a great idea. It's not going to happen in six months. No. You need to, you still need to maintain and win that. At the same time, and I think that's probably where the biggest clash was, where there's this, you know, like Wayne coming in with a good pedigree of football and he wants to play the game the right way. And I think he said himself, and we've said it time and time again on this, that he didn't understand football, uh, Scottish football. He didn't do his research and he didn't, he didn't learn to embrace it quick enough. He was going to change it in his mind. Um, and... Like in, in his head, like football should be played this way, and he he didn't he didn't want to change. It's not just that the players didn't want to adapt to him. He didn't want to accept that. No, but I, I can't. 
I need to get two big guys at the back. If with my centre half, I can't have the free, the free phone football and Carl's fencing or whatever it was meant to be. And you know, I think that's I can only imagine like I, I, I feel I feel every emotion that Barry Ferguson would have been screaming at that point because that's what it is. It's we need to win. We need to. This isn't good enough. I right? mm. so it's the one thing Barry Ferguson had on the side was as a fan base, we felt the exact same way. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. And you've you've touched on so many good points there. That no matter how much you want to change the culture, if you're not winning, you can't. And when New Year's Day, we're sitting down to our state pie and about probably well, I'm I'm eleven at this point. I don't know what you are. But Barry Ferguson gets called into Le Guin's office and doesn't even get the chance to sit down. Le Guin tells him, you're finished at this club, you'll never play again. Strips him of the captaincy and Ferguson leaves the training ground. Now, Ferguson immediately contacts the, the media and tells him the situation that had happened and Murray did not know this was coming. Murray knew that this, Murray knew nothing. The the weird thing about this is, is that Le Guin tells Murray after calling Ferguson in. That to me is a man, in my opinion, you might disagree, but that is a man wanting Murray to take action. He's this is this is the this is the tipping point. This is Le Guin saying, "I need to do this. This is my way out." You're spot on. Le Guin knows by this point that if he goes to Murray with a problem. Murray's just going to tell him why he's wrong and why everything's actually okay. And Absolutely. the world is nice and rosy. Yes. Leguen's clocked on to the, the Murray charm and, and he's took action. And, you know, it's, <laughs> see if you watch this in a sitcom, you know, just a guy walking <laughs> stick it thinking, how can I get sacked? <laughs> <laughs> um, in any other workplace, it'd be funny, but when it's an emotive workplace, like a football club, it's... Um, I, it was just at that point you're like, wow, this has been a laughing stock this season, and this is just embarrassing. Um, the manager stripping the captaincy and to rub salt in the wounds, appointed Gavin Ray the captain. Um, it's hardly hardly fills you with confidence that replacement. And that's the thing, and you mentioned there about Gavin Ray that. I've spoke to Gavin Ray on my channel. Gavin Ray is a lovely, lovely man. Gavin Ray, all due respect, should never have been Rangers captain. And Le Guin, I think, again, hangs hangs Gavin Ray out to dry. But Le Guin's thing at that point, and he'd said it earlier on in the season, it, what the captaincy isn't important. Now, to Rangers fans, that is not the case. But you'd be... We've grown up with. I mean, my 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 favorite captain is Barry Ferguson because he's the one I remember. But ask Terry Butcher, Richard Goff. You know I mean, before that, John Gregg, Jock Shaw. Before that, that Rangers cap, the Rangers captaincy does mean something, and that was what Le Guin didn't get. You can't just knock the the captaincy out the window. It's it's a symbol of Rangers Football Club, and that saying that he, he didn't share their fans' appreciation for the captain, say nobody in their wildest dreams thought Gavin Ray should have been the Rangers captain. And that's no knocking Gavin Ray. 
But Gavin Ray's admitted that himself to me. No, you're, you're right. Gavin Ray was a decent player. Like, it's just, was the what we needed at, at that point, I don't think, but it, it was a decent player and in the right team, he would have fitted in. Um, the, fa- the fascinating thing with that is, and I've just remembered this, Gavin Ray thought he was getting called in to be sold. That's how far away Gavin Ray was from that position. Exactly. And th- you make a good point there that Wigwen was very open about the, the captaincy and that's just back to that. He didn't want to accept that not just Rangers, but Scottish football, British football is different. He didn't want to accept that there was a bit of adaption because in Britain we do, there is a high, a much higher regard for the captaincy than across the continent and it's just a, it's a different style and like that's just one of the number of things you you have to learn and you have to adapt it if you move between countries and just another thing that at best he didn't comprehend and he understand that whilst he knew it and he just thought this this is my way out taking what they hold in such high regard and just throwing it in the mud that'll get me my ticket the final game of this era I'm not well actually there's one more game we'll touch on but Rangers go to Far Park the fans are there's only one thing that the talk of the town obviously is the situation with Gwen and Ferguson Ferguson, I think, has got the, the fans on his side. Do you remember the famous statement, no Barry, no Rangers, that's nonsense. I totally disagreed with that at the time, still think it's cringe. But Rangers win the game 1-0, Boyd scores a, a penalty, and the famous Six Fingers goes up, the tribute to Ferguson. That showed, I think it showed to me, it showed to the fans, where the players stood in this feud that was going on at the time between Ferguson and Le Guin. And if you're, if you're I don't know how I feel about Chris Boyd showing the doing the fingers and things like that. I think it's just undermining the manager's authority a bit. And I get the whole thing of the dressing room where we're agreeing with Ferguson. The fans were agreeing with Ferguson. Ferguson was right. Ferguson's argument was right. Ferguson's way of going about it was all wrong. But that was the thing. The Ferguson had the fans on his side. Ferguson had more respect with the fans. Ferguson was there for, for years he had built that trust with the fans. He'd built the, the admiration. Le Guin hadn't earned that. And that's, I think Le Guin knew that. I think Le Guin knew this was the way to go. Nah, yeah. What you said there about Boyd showing the, the six fingers in, in public, I'm totally on board with, with the same as you, that we shouldn't be airing our dirty laundry in public. That's, yeah, just, that's exactly it. It's, another, it's just another thing to laugh at us with. And that's what it felt like. And, Oh, you're, you're right, it was very evident that night where the where the players stood. Uh, but, well, well, at least the, the Scottish players stood um, behind Ferguson. And I, it was, you just knew like, there wasn't going to be any way back after that night. And I, and back to that point, I wasn't angry anymore. I was just, when, when will that, how does this even get better? When will it end? But, Murray, at that point, Murray's, I think Murray sees the writing on the wall. He absolutely does, and he has to find a re- resolution. But Le Guin's press, Le Guin's, Le Guin's interview after the game is very interesting because he's asked, do you have the backing of David Murray? And he says, yes, he didn't. He absolutely didn't. Murray, Murray knew what was happening. Murray, we can talk about David Murray's decision-making and his, his carelessness 
that we'll touch on later on and his hesitance to make big decisions, but he knows at this point that this this has to end. It has to end for everybody's benefit. Rangers in particular makes a phone call that has has the replacement in place. We'll touch on that next week, but pulls Le Guin into his office two days after the Motherwell game and yeah, it's agreed that Le Guin's departure is going to be finalised. To Le Guin's credit, he forfeited compensation. He didn't want paid for what he saw as a failed job, but he did ask Murray to pay up the contracts of his staff, which Murray did agree to. Le Guin, Le Guin's time was over, but I think you've got to admire that. Like He knows it was a failed job and he makes sure his staff who he'd brought with him would obviously change their lives and he'd made sure they were well compensated. I think Le Guin leaves in a bit. I think he earns a bit of respect for that, in my opinion. It does. And then it, that's probably why, if I'm looking at the, the ending of the story, that why I have a bit of sympathy for him when it has grown really wrong because this is a guy who's who's asked to leave in two months into the role. Uh, told basically no, and then he just goes through hell. And at the end... He's not interested in gaining from it. He's just wanted out of that situation, but wanted to make sure that the guys who went through that roller coaster with him were were fairly looked after. Mm-hmm. And you know that's your right. Like respect is re kind of reestablished a wee bit there, and it's I it's just it shouldn't have been on that long. It really shouldn't have. No, it definitely shouldn't have. But it's all it's all reports says it's an amicable split, Murray. And Le Guin, I think they shake hands and it's all done fairly amicably. But he then pulls Ferguson in. That does not go as amicably. Murray rips through him, absolutely tears him to shreds. Murray's uh, Ferguson's agent's in the room as well. Murray warns Ferguson, if you ever step out of line, your time at Rangers Football Club is over. And I don't think Barry Ferguson left that room with that going through his head that that, that would be true. It turned it do, it does ring true a few years later, and we can talk about as Ferg, Ferguson's argument was valid. He knew that this wasn't the Rangers standard, but he didn't behave properly, in my opinion. And I'm someone who idolizes Barry Ferguson, always have, but it his heart was in the right place. I think it's fair to say, but he just he didn't handle it the best. And Murray. Murray's an intelligent man. Murray knows what was going on. And to be fair to him, Murray's... I think Murray, Murray saw it as well as, you're upsetting me. You're ruining my plans. And I think Ferguson probably left that day thinking, oh, that'll calm down. It doesn't. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. <laughs> Murray couldn't give a monkey's how much he was upset on the ground. But as soon as it causes him bother, then that is when the issue is. And it was good to see... It, it, it was good that Ferguson was brought down to earth a bit, but that message doesn't that message doesn't last if they don't get the next appointment right and bring in Walter Smith. And I know that's you'll be touching that in the coming weeks. Um, but if they get that appointment wrong and they have a you know they, they hire a manager with, with less fortitude and strength than and steel than Smith. Then Ferguson will just continue being, you know, I'm I'm Barry Rangers, uh, I am Rangers, and that's why that and that point 
I mean, amongst other reasons, was huge for the squad as well because that was never going to be tolerated. And actually, a few years down the line, it, it, it was off Rangers' duty that he, he thought he was safe and he wasn't. He wasn't indeed. And the Laguerre era comes to an end. We'll get the overall review in a wee minute. But one last game to go through. Ferguson comes back into the team for a trip to Dunfermline. I can hear screaming already from some fans who are listening to this of so this game. Ian Durant comes in, he'd obviously been at the club in a youth capacity and he takes charge of the first team and it's a 3-2 defeat and Rangers' season effectively ends in the 6th of January. And you know what? That's, um, for me, when I keep on talking about when is this going to end, I thought, right, like when's away, we'll have a teething, teething period and then, you know, things will start to be better and then it was just... Gwen was at this point in this game, when Gwen's away and we're getting booed the cup again. You're like, oh, how how long will this go on for? But you know, it's I don't blame Durant for that. I know he got a lot of heat at the time, but it was a it was an unforgivable situation to be put in. And I'm pretty sure he started Ferguson and Gavin Ray. Um, yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they started together before. Uh, before that, I can't even really remember. Avenue was brought in to be Ferguson's replacement. Aye. So playing both of them and it's you're stuck between a, a rock and a hard place. If you only start Ferguson, does that mean okay, right? Aye, it's Barry Rangers. If you if you don't start Ferguson, right, does that mean like when was on to stop me? Like what's yeah. And aye, so it's a tough job for Gerard. I don't blame him for it, but it doesn't make it make the memory any less painful. No, and Closing up, obviously, Murray goes into the... He phones an old friend in who's doing well at Scotland and it's it's done pretty quickly. Walter Smith's coming back. That felt right. It felt just that safe pair of hands. That's the symbol of this season now as Walter comes in and steadies the ship. Aye, and that was... Um, that, that is when we spoke about what we needed... When McLeish was leaving, we needed to try and revitalise and revamp what we needed done. Murray did get this one spot on. It's one of the very, very few times I'm going to, um, I'm going to give credit to David Murray. But at that point in time, we needed somebody who can come in, steady the ship, get back to basics and just, you know, bring a bit of unity into the club again. And he got, got this appointment spot on. Yeah. Let's look back in the Le Guin era. What is the overall takeaways? What's the legacy of the Paul Le Guin period at Ibrox? It's funny. Um, up until uh, 10 years ago, I always thought the Le Guin era, know what, Colin? It'll never be as bad as that again. <laughs> <laughs> how, how naive was I? Um, and I, I think there's, there's so much you can, so much Rangers can learn from looking back at the Ligwen era and what when you're taking a risky point, what to do, what not to do, how to approach it. We didn't learn with Kishinya. Uh, so that's two prime examples. So I'm hoping Van Bronkos doesn't go for a long, long time. But if we're going for another radical appointment, I'll, we've got very two prominent reference points here. Um, but overall, Ligwen is, you know, it's just that depth, the absolute highest of excitements and I, I'm genuine when when I say all my time as a Rangers fan I've never been 
I, I don't remember being that excited mm-hmm. um, over a summer period about what's going to happen, uh, who we're going to sign, how good are we going to be, and then just a massive dip. So uh, that was probably the, the highest of highs right to the lowest of lows. And Murray, again, and we need to touch on this, Murray doesn't help him. Murray does not. He, he, I think he sells him a bill of goods and sells him that you'll just come to Ibrooks. I'll look after you. I'll give you what you want. You'll be able to take over for Wenger in the future if you build it here. And it gives him three million and three players for Austria Vienna. And that's that's Murray's problem here at this point. Murray at this point, that I Murray wanted Paul Le Guin. He wanted to pursue Paul Le Guin, but when it came to Helping Paul Le Guin, he doesn't, and that Le Guin obviously it doesn't work out. But Murray just, and he gets away with it because Smith comes in and completely steadies the shit. But Murray deserves a lot of blame for this period, in uh, my opinion. You're you're spot on, and it's something that it doesn't it doesn't get the blame when we think about this six months. Paul Le Guin's in charge; he firmly takes the heat for it. Even now, when we're like 16 years on. For, for me, as much as Paul Gwen has got so much to blame for and so much he could have done differently, I, I lie more blame at the at the defeat of David Murray. Uh, because it's for, for it was it was sold out of Bill of Goods, as you say, um that for the get go. We've just got two completely different expectations. Um, well, the expectation is different for reality in terms of how he's going to be getting set up. And then it just, for that, for September onwards, it just handles it poorly. And it, it again, and this is so prominent through the Murray era, his biggest focus is saving face for David Murray, not yes. doing what's right for Rangers. And so I, I put... I put more blame at David Murray than I do Paul Edwin. And as we say, this whole period is just a weird period in Rangers history. And next week in the show, we will take a look at what happened when Walter Smith came back for his second spell, completely steadying the ship, absolutely just revitalising the support. And we will obviously touch on that famous season in Manchester when Rangers nearly get to grips with European glory. Colin, thank you very much for joining me in this episode. It has been an absolute pleasure to get through this period. Well, maybe not pleasure is the right word, but it's certainly been a, an entertaining show to do. Thank you very much for coming on. I've really enjoyed it. No, thanks very much for having me on, Scott. And you know what? It's been quite therapeutic. I've got a lot off my chest that's been lying there for 16 years. So, no, I've, you know, it has been, it's been fun looking back at it. Um, it's far enough away now we can have a laugh and a joke about it, but no, yeah, it's been absolutely. a pleasure, mate. Thanks it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to everyone that's tuned in. Join us on the next part of the Rangers journey. <laughs>